Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm the ministry assistant for adult education here at Calvary. Uh, I'm sorry I missed you last week. I wasn't scheduled to preach, but I was scheduled to give announcements. And as you may remember, I couldn't uh, because I was predisposed elsewhere. My, my wife was predisposed elsewhere. Um, last Saturday, we welcomed our second born, our first son. And as you may also have heard, he's a big boy, 10 pounds, 4 ounces. Um, and it's funny, leading it up to the delivery, this is our second, and everyone's telling Shelby, telling me, like, oh, the second one goes so much easier. It's really no big deal. It just, it's going to be no stress at all. And then you deliver a 10-pound baby, and it's funny, after, uh, since the baby's been born, everyone's asking Shelby, how'd the delivery go? And she says, much worse than last time. <laughs> um, but we're doing good, settling into life as a family of four, um, and it's good to be with you this morning, as I said. I have the honor and the privilege of sharing from God's Word today. I want to thank Pastor Gerald and, by extension, the elders here at Calvary for giving me the opportunity. I feel really privileged to have the opportunity. It's not something that I take lightly, and I pray, I hope, that the next 30 minutes or so isn't something that any of us would take lightly. We have the opportunity this Sunday and every Sunday to hear from the living God through his word. That's not about me, it's not about Pastor Gerald, it's not about Pastor Eric or anyone else who may be preaching, but primarily and ultimately, it's about what God has to say to us through Scripture. Amen? Amen. So before we get going, I'm going to thank God and I'm going to ask him for his help. Father, we're grateful to you this morning that you're a God who speaks You've not left us as orphans in the world, but have given us your word, your spirit, who is present with us and among us and within us today. Father, I pray that you would help me as I preach, that the words I say, my thoughts, my motives of heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Pray that you would give me the ability to communicate clearly and effectively what you want to say to us today. Pray that you would prepare all of our hearts as we're gathered here to hear from you. We bless you and thank you for giving us the book of Hebrews, 
And we pray that you bless our time together now. All of this we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So just to make sure everybody's in a good mood as we get going, we're going to do a quick thought experiment. Pretty easy. All I want you to do is think of one of the most embarrassing or humiliating experiences of your life. Maybe when you were just a kid, you went up to hug somebody who you thought was your mom, only to find out that you were clinging to the leg of a complete stranger. Or maybe you were out with your family at a restaurant and the server dropped off your food and as he or she was going back to the kitchen, they told you, enjoy your meal, and you said, you too. <laughs> maybe you saw someone waving at you, waved back only to realize they were waving at the person behind you, and you got to pretend you have like an itch on your head or something like that. Maybe on a more serious note, Someone found out something about you that was less than flattering. Maybe you let your family or your boss or your team down in some way. Maybe you were mocked or humiliated for an opinion or view that you held that was not held by the majority or the other people in the room. Maybe you were called out for unintentionally or intentionally saying something that was insensitive, racist, sexist. Or maybe you yourself were humiliated or demeaned by others because of your own race, your background, your gender, your family. If you're like me, maybe you have a, a Rolodex of really uncomfortable experiences that you've had in your life that are just drilled really deep down into your brain that for whatever reason just kind of come unbidden up into the forefront of your mind. And no matter how, like, it could be something that happened when I was six and I'm still like, ooh, that was, that was uncomfortable. It still stings when you remember it. The fact of the matter is that we as human beings don't like being humiliated, embarrassed, or shamed. And we, uh, we avoid, rather, experiences like this naturally. And it's pretty much universally agreed on that being humiliated is a bad thing. And we would rather avoid it than endure it. Really, embarrassment is, is one thing. An embarrassing situation, which is some of the kind of more lighthearted examples I, were, I was giving, those are uncomfortable in the moment, but oftentimes they become less uncomfortable with time, and eventually it becomes a funny story when you're getting together with friends or family and you say, hey, remember that time when you said... But humiliation is different. Humiliation, according to an article in the online publication Psychology Today, humiliation involves abasement of pride and dignity, and with it, loss of status and social standing. The point I want to highlight here is that there's a communal dimension to humiliation. It has to do with our relationships with the people around us, whether the people in our neighborhood, in our family, at work, in our nation, in our social group. Humiliation is what we experience when, for whatever reason, we are held in reproach or derision by the people in our community, the people around us. So the question we're going to try to answer from our text today is this, 
How should Christians endure reproach and humiliation for their allegiance to Christ? But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I do want to say just a couple things to you as we begin. Perhaps you came here with a a friend or a family member, or perhaps you're considering Christianity as a religion, but you're hesitating to fully jump in. I suspect that one reason for your hesitation may be not wanting to take on the negative social stigma of being a Christian. It varies in our culture from place to place, depending on where you live or even your age or your background or a whole variety of factors. But not everybody likes Christians or thinks highly of Christians. And you may be thinking as someone outside the Christian community that Christians don't always have the greatest reputation. And you would hesitate to associate with Christianity for fear of that negative stigma. Even if you do find some of the teachings interesting or compelling or the thoughts about the the world to be interesting in some regard. But I want to assure you that the negative stigma of Christianity in some communities isn't lost on Christians. It's something we're well well aware of, but we have decided decided to follow Christ anyway and to associate with his church. So I would encourage you to think about this as we move through the message this morning. What are Christians getting from their allegiance to Christ that makes the negative stigma of Christianity worth it to them, worth it to us? And what would it make, what would make it worth it to you? All right, so back to our central question. How should Christians respond when we experience reproach and humiliation, whether big or small, for our faith? For the first half of the sermon, I'm going to talk about why Christians experience reproach in the world. And then for the second half, I'm going to talk about how Christians should respond to that reproach. Those of you who have been with us in recent weeks and months will know that we've been working our way through the New Testament book of Hebrews, which is a letter written to a group of Christians living just a couple decades after Jesus rose from the dead. And as Pastor Gerald and others have been sharing, the original recipients of this letter were, were, not, were not sure what all the details were, but they were enduring some difficult circumstance or set of circumstances that was causing them to consider calling it quits on their Christian faith. These readers are feeling the pressure to revert back to a previous way of life under a previous set of religious beliefs, namely Judaism, and our author is exhorting his hearers not to abandon their faith in Christ. Pastor Gerald also mentioned last week that we're getting into the final remarks and exhortations of the letter. Our author has, for the most part, completed his primary argument, and he's now wrapping things up with his final words of encouragement and exhortation to these Christians. The text we read this morning is uh, sandwiched in the middle of the text that Gerald taught from last week, so if the verses seem familiar, that's why. But this is a bit of an aside from the overall argument, so Pastor Gerald asked me to focus on these verses in particular for our message this morning. So we're going to be working our way through the text that was read for us. I'm going to be doing my best to move in the order of the passage and outline the points as I already did 
The passage, as we mentioned, uh, can be found on page 1008 of the Pew Bible. And as I work through the message, I'll be talking about chapter and verse numbers here and there. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, the, the chapters are the larger numbers, and then the verses are the smaller numbers inside of the text itself, so that may help you follow along. So, part one, why do Christians experience reproach? We're going to go ahead and start with verse 8. In verse 8, we read that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Throughout Hebrews, the, uh, throughout Hebrews, the author has been arguing for and demonstrating the surpassing supremacy of Christ relative to the angels as well as to the previous stages of revelation from God. In short, Jesus is superior because he himself is God's son and a co-sharer with God the Father of the one unique divine nature. Something that comes with the territory of being God and having a divine nature, at least in Christianity, is the fact that unlike human beings who change over time, the, the character and being of God is static and unchangeable. In Christian theology, this is called the doctrine of divine immutability, which means that God cannot change. The unchangeableness of God. You don't need to know the term immutability. I just need to throw it in there to make myself feel better about the money I spent studying theology in grad school. <laughs> but the point for our purposes is this. Jesus has not, does not, and cannot change. The reason this is important for the author's argument is because of what comes next. In verse 9, then, we read... Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. The author here is setting up a contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. The contrast is between the sameness of Jesus on the one hand and the plurality of false teachings on the other. This contrast is, for the, is the grounds for the argument moving forward. You could read it this way. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Or, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, therefore do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. I like the NIV translation here for this verse which reads, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. This, I think, is better at the original Greek of the passage. In particular, the verb for carried away, which, means pro, which is prospero, which literally means to carry along. For instance, by the flow of a river or a stream or perhaps a strong wind. The image here is of one being swept along by the flow of cultural ideas and communal pressures. We can imagine, then, the unchanging stability of Jesus as the anchor or the rock that holds us in the midst of a cultural marketplace of ideas that is constantly flowing by and threatening to sweep us away with the current. The stability of Jesus' character is the key to the stability 
of our belief in him. So here it is. Why do Christians experience reproach in the world? Answer, because Christians do not go with the flow of worldly influence. As Christians, we can imagine ourselves standing against the pressures of society, facing away from the flow, I guess it would be towards the flow of the river. In this passage in particular, the author is talking about competing non-Christian doctrines or teachings present in the context of his original hearers. It's specifically focused on the Jewish context, but notice, as I, as I read in the NIV translation, that the author says all kinds of teachings. So yes, I think Judaism is in view, but in a pluralistic society like ancient Rome, all variety of ideas about religion and culture and ritual practice are also in view. And in a pluralistic society like our own today, the same is the case. As Pastor Gerald mentioned last week, the word strange here doesn't necessarily mean weird or bizarre, but carries with it an emphasis on newness or novelty. The newness of an idea, oh, I didn't think about it that way, or oh, that's kind of an interesting perspective that you hadn't heard before. He goes on to contrast Jesus with the teachings of Judaism in particular, but I want to emphasize that this doesn't apply just to Judaism, but to all kinds of non-Christian teachings. So Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. New and novel religious ideas are not. So if you're expecting, if there's some aspect of Christianity or of Christian teaching that's you just kind of wish the Bible didn't say it that way. And you're hoping or expecting that somehow Christian teaching or ideas are going to suddenly be different than they have been for the past 2,000 years, you're going to be waiting for a good bit longer. The Bible says that our faith was once delivered to the saints, and while Christians from every generation find new ways to explain and appropriate our faith in ways that are fitting to their time and context, the content of the gospel and the Lord to which we swear allegiance has not, does not, and will not change. So back to the text, continuing with the second half of verse 9, we read, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now in verse 10, we Christians have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Returning specifically to the Jewish belief system that our original audience was considering returning to, the system that they grew up with, presumably, the author argues simply that our access to God, our altar before God in Christ is far beyond anything that the Jewish people experienced under the Old Covenant. Moving on in our text, we read, 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. The reference to the bodies being burned outside the camp is an allusion to the Jewish feast day called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. This feast day is still celebrated today in Jewish communities, but during the sacrificial era of Judaism, when the temple was still in existence and the tabernacle before it, the Day of Atonement was one of the most important feast days in the Jewish calendar because the Day of Atonement was when the high priest of Israel offered a sacrifice to cleanse the people of their sin. This sacrifice prefigured the sacrifice of Jesus that would truly atone for the sins of the world, not just the Jewish people. We read in Leviticus 16 that the high priest was to bring the bodies of the animals offered for atonement outside the camp to dispose of them. The burning of the atonement sacrifices outside the camp signified the rejection and the stigma of the sin that the people were removing from themselves. In the ancient world and even the medieval world, being inside the city gates or inside the camp signified the social acceptance of your community as well as physical safety. So sending the animals of the sacrifice outside of the camp to dispose of them wasn't just some ritual practice of rejection of our sin, but it also implied that to be outside of the community means serious danger and exposure to the elements as well as to enemies. The camp, the city, signifies the approval and the good repute in your community. So those who are held in reproach by the community are pushed outside of the gates, outside of the walls, and relegated to the margins of society. And the connection that our author is making is the connection between these sacrifices on the Day of Atonement and then Jesus, who when he was crucified, we read in the Gospel of John, was crucified on a hill outside of the city, which is what the author mentions as well. Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people or to make the people holy. So now we're getting to the main idea of the passage and of the sermon. So part one, why do Christians experience reproach in the world? Because we do not go with the flow of the world system. Now part two, how should Christians respond when we experience reproach and humiliation in our community? Answer, bear the reproach as Jesus did. So what does it mean for us today to bear Christ's reproach? Before we talk specifically about what that looks like, I want to take some time to talk about what it doesn't look like. So I put together a little list. Here comes five things we do instead of bearing Christ's reproach. Number one, back off. For some of us, when we perceive that we are being held in reproach, 
One of the ways we respond is to withdraw from our community. It's easier to handle the reproach of others when we simply avoid those people. Avoid the people who hold us in reproach. Maybe this means not participating in community activities. Maybe this simply means we never talk to those in our family who don't approve of our Christian belief. But if we don't pursue our neighbors or coworkers for this relationship, it's pretty easy to stay in our holy huddle and literally never interact with, in a meaningful way with someone who thinks or believes differently than you do. This amounts to hiding from the reproach rather than carrying it. So five things we do instead of bearing Christ's reproach. Number one, back off. Number two, shut up. In this case, we may pursue people for relationship, but we avoid the topics of conversation that may highlight our Christian commitments. If this is you, you very much buy into the popular wisdom that religion is a topic of conversation that should be avoided in polite conversation. But this also amounts to hiding from the reproach rather than carrying it. So five things we do rather than bear reproach. Number one, back off. Number two, shut up. Number three, smooth over. Uh, I confess that for me, of the five things that I've put together on this list, this is probably the most tempting. This, is, this would be the response that I'm most inclined towards. In order to minimize offense, we may deny the reason for the reproach or deny that it exists at all or insist that, you know, Christians are a pretty misunderstood bunch of, bunch of people. We don't actually think like that. People think we do, but we don't. Or it's not all that bad. Or I don't believe all those offensive things that other Christians believe. Or we deny our connections to the Christian community before others for fear of embarrassment. Yeah, I go to church, but the people there are kind of weird. It's not where I like to hang out. I do it because of how I, how I grew up. I love Jesus, but the people, I don't know. We massage and adjust our presentation of who we are to spare the possibility of potential offense in our relationships. So number one, we back off. Number two, shut up. Number three, smooth over. Number four, double down. With this response, we do the opposite of smoothing things over, and we actually seek out, pursue, and highlight the offense and reproach of the gospel whenever possible. In this response, some of us almost relish the feeling of being at odds with worldly authorities and values. And we offer unsolicited advice, an opinion on every online post, a passing comment, or a theologically incorrect statement we hear. Ultimately, this is argumentative. This isn't bearing reproach. As is the last thing on our list. So, five things we do instead of bearing the reproach of Christ. Number one, back off. Number two, shut up. Number three, smooth over. Number four, double down. And number five, lash out. 
This final response to reproach is sadly all too common. And this response is to lash out and insult the people who hold us in reproach. This can take the form of speaking in disrespectful or demeaning ways about our neighbors or coworkers who are not Christians. It can often take the form, as, I, as I've alluded to already, of posting aggressive, sarcastic, and biting things on Facebook or other social media. We'll say things on social media that we would never say to people in person. And often, our social media activity serves to nurse our own sense of superiority to people who think or believe differently than we do. No one's getting saved because of your witty, sarcastic meme about how atheists are, stup are stupid. So this doesn't fit into the list of five, but just something I wanted to say because I think it's important. Yes, the Bible teaches us as Christians to be bold, and it teaches us that we will experience reproach of others because our message is the aroma of death to those who are perishing. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. Jesus told us that it would. He said, when the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. But the biblical call to endure reproach is not license to be obnoxious. It's not license to be uncharitable or unapologetically offensive. And if the offensiveness of the gospel is just a free pass to do and say offensive things for you, maybe you're not bearing reproach or being a faithful, unafraid witness to the truth. Maybe you're just not very nice. So just because we're Christians doesn't mean we shouldn't think carefully about what we say when we say it, or how we say it. So, to help illustrate, I think, what it looks like to bear Christ's reproach, just a quick illustration. Uh, my wife and I, every year for our anniversary, we're both, we're both baseball fans. We talk a lot about soccer in this church. I've, um, I've talked to Pastor Johnny many times about soccer, I don't hold anything against soccer. It just hasn't, qu it hasn't quite clicked for me yet. Um, but I grew, up, I grew up following baseball, and I'm still a big baseball fan. My wife and I are, are, are Cubs fans, and every year for our anniversary, we decided that we wanted to go and visit a different baseball park. Uh, so, Lord willing, through the first 30 years of our marriage, we would visit every single baseball park in the country. Uh, we don't always go to where the Cubs are playing, but we've done it a couple times. And if you have ever been a traveling sports fan, I think you know what it feels like to bear the reproach of the people around you. So when you show up at AT&T Park in San Francisco when the Cubs are playing the Giants wearing a Jake Arrieta jersey and a Cubs hat, he doesn't play for the Cubs anymore, but he did then. Um, 
you're, you're, you're inviting some negative attention. And the people aren't mad that you showed up to watch a baseball game. They're just mad that you're cheering for the wrong team. So the natural question is, why would anyone endure the disdain, insult, reproach, nay, the persecution that traveling sports fans are subjected to in another team's city? And the answer to that is, your team, your team might win. And if your team wins, the vindication that you will feel in that moment will be worth all the hardship and negative attention and adversity you face to get there. So similarly, we can endure reproach and embarrassment for our association with Christ because of the future vindication and hope associated with our Christian identity. In verse 14 we read, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, him, Jesus, and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We can endure reproach as Christians because we know the institutions and, commun and community connections that are holding us in reproach or rejecting us are not lasting. The author says we have no lasting city here. Similarly, Jesus knew when he went to the cross that the institutions and communities that were scorning him, the people of Jerusalem, the temple priests, even what would have seemed at the time the all-powerful Roman Empire, all of these were temporary communities and institutions. Indeed, every human community is a cheap, temporary counterfeit of the true and abiding community that will exist in the city to come. Jesus was killed and held in reproach by his community, not ultimately because he was healing people or teaching some stuff a little different, but Jesus was murdered because he claimed equality with Yahweh, the God of Israel, and refused to give allegiance to the cultural power structures of the day, the temple, the priesthood, the emperor, Jesus instead bore the reproach of all these world systems that he might purify us from our sins and make us co-inheritors of the world with him. But Jesus' reproach was his vindication. Because Jesus refused to swear allegiance to the world and experienced rejection in the world, a reversal occurred where God accepted him, God his father, and raised him from the dead. Jesus' reproach was his vindication. And our reproach for following Jesus isn't ultimately about what Christians believe. I understand there are different things at different times and in different places that Christians come under fire for for espousing, but it's not ultimately, I, I think, about what we believe. Rather, it's about who we believe in. And maybe more to the point, 
who we don't believe in. So if you will not swear allegiance to the Democratic Party, you will come into the reproach of those who do. If you will not swear allegiance to the Republican Party, you will experience the reproach of those who do. If you will not swear allegiance to the communities that gather around American exceptionalism or white nationalism, you will come into reproach by those communities. If you do not affirm the value systems of sexual liberation, American capitalistic consumerism, you will come into reproach. But just like the Roman Empire itself, the United States itself will one day go the way of all flesh. So the difference between these various cities that I've mentioned and Jesus' city is that the new Jerusalem abides and the other cities do not. So for the original hearers of this letter, there was real concern, there, there was real concern and legitimate danger for them of social and societal loss. The author tells the hearers early in the letter that they have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but the implication is that they might. They were risking rejection by their Jewish community, their ethnic community, their family community. And moreover, in addition to their family, ethnic background reproach, they were risking exposure to the Roman authorities and disdain from the powers of this world. So maybe you are at risk of bearing the reproach of the people in your community, in your family, in your workplace. But Jesus promised those who followed him that if they lose brother and sister and mother for following him, they will receive back brothers and sisters and mothers a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. So the difference between these cities and Christ's city is that Christ's city abides. So we, as Christians, are on the winning team. And just as God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, so too he will vindicate and raise us on the last day. The open, unashamed, loving, meek, humble confession of Jesus' name, a confession that willingly bears the reproach of Christ, this is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to ask yourself, what community or what value system do you swear allegiance to? Is that community a lasting community? Or, just like the water in a stream, will it pass in a moment only to be replaced by whatever new cultural current or power structure is coming down the line? And if you're here and you are a Christian, and you're feeling the pressure to cave or to go with the flow of cultural institutions' ideas, 
and religious beliefs. Remember that no community that rejects you here on earth will abide when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. So to close, I'll simply read the last few verses of our text. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly confess his name. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your son who bore reproach for us that we might have access to you and that we might be with you forever in the city that is to come. We thank you for the encouragement that we feel when we think to our future hope. We pray that you would Give us resolve to bear your son's reproach in this world, knowing that we will receive back a future community that will far surpass any rejection that we experience in this life. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we've had together today. And we pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.